If you would, please take a copy of God's word and turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, the sermon text is printed on the inside cover of the bulletin. Uh, you can also find a number of other ways, including pew Bibles. Um, the hymnals are red, the pew Bibles are black in the uh, chair rack in front of you. Without Further ado, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Isaiah 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came... Was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who were taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, earnestly we seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Father, we come to you thirsty, weary, because what this world has to offer does not satisfy the deep longing of our soul. And so we come to you asking that you would provide life and light and healing for all that we need. Show us our sin. Sadly, we see it far too often, but show us our sin and then show us our Savior. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who say there's two kinds of people in the world and those who don't. It's not true, of course. Those aren't the right categories, but actually there are two kinds of people in the world. And you'll see them in Isaiah 50 if you're paying attention. What are they? What's the dividing line? What separates the two groups? Well, it is in politics or sports fandom or ethnicity or some socioeconomic category. What is the great separator? Well, the answer to that question is important. 
But before we get there, we need to look at other questions like the rhetorical questions that God is asking in Isaiah 51 through 3, as well as the questions that Israel was asking, which lie behind God's rhetorical questions. In other words, God is answering Israel's questions with more questions. And if we pay attention to the answer, then we will learn about one, at least one, of those two kinds of people. Only three points today, not ten, but I will still make sure you get your money's worth. So the first one, the suffering of God's people. The suffering of God's people in verses 1 through 3. The question you should be asking is why? Why are God's people suffering? Because that's what Israel is asking. I'm going to explain that in a minute because you see the director of the movie, as it were. He doesn't show us that scene. He cuts straight to God's response. So now we, the audience, are forced to say, why is God saying this? Why Why is he saying this? What did they say to him? Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Okay, let's take the scene in. Not sure about you, but this feels uncomfortable. It's like walking in on a fight. The word divorce was just uttered. Why is God asking about a certificate of divorce, about selling Israel to his creditors? Because that's what they were accusing God of. God, we're on the verge of exile. Have you you divorced us? Have you severed your covenant with us? Has your steadfast love ceased being steadfast? To which God says what? If I divorced you, then where is the certificate of divorce which the husband is required to give in such a situation in these times? Where is it? Israel has no answer, verse 2 says. And what else did they apparently say or accuse God of? Okay, fine. Maybe you still love us. You haven't divorced us. Maybe you are the greater Hosea who pursues an unworthy people, an unworthy and unfaithful wife. Maybe you still love us, but isn't our current condition proof that you were powerless to save us? Didn't you sell us off to your creditors to pay the debt that you couldn't afford? See, that was common practice back then, selling a slave to pay off a debt. But it wasn't common practice for for God, for Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant Lord. The accusation's ridiculous. So God responds with ridicule. Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you, he says in verse 1, followed by this in verse 2. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. There's allusions to Exodus, to creation, all kinds of stuff here. The bottom line is God is not in debt. God doesn't owe anyone anything, and God doesn't owe you or me. Even if we act like it sometimes in our bitterness, our jealousy, our envy, don't I deserve whatever? God doesn't owe us. God is rich. 
in mercy and in wealth. God is rich. God is powerful. His arm is not too short, not too weak to save. The God who created, the implication here is that he can uncreate as well, to save his people, to do as he pleases. He can dry up the Red Sea that he created to save his people. He can provide light in the Hebrews' neighborhood, but make it dark in the rest of Egypt around them if he wants to. The problem is not God's power or God's love, that that those are somehow lacking. No, what is lacking? Could it be our obedience, the obedience of his people? Could we be the problem? Look again at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. What's the problem? Who's the problem? God is not in debt. God has not fallen out of love with us. No, our sins have created a chasm that we cannot cross. Our lawlessness has driven us away from the holy God, the one who's the embodiment of his holy law, pure perfection, infinite in all his glorious perfections. Is our sin the problem? Well, you know, Adam didn't think so at first, or if he did, he didn't admit it. He thought the problem was the woman whom you gave me, God. Blame shifting, a result of the fall, a byproduct of humans who cannot stand their own shame, who must turn the attention somewhere else, anywhere but here. That's one kind of person. The person who has nothing wrong with them, nothing that they can't handle on their own. Sin led to blame shifting. It also led to covering, covering our shame with with fig leaves, for example. Ed Welch, in the book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he writes this. There are two ways that we can become naked or ashamed. He's speaking metaphorically. The first is self-imposed nakedness that is due to our shameful nature and our personal sin. He calls that sin shame. And the second is other imposed nakedness that we experience because of the sin of other people. Sadly, some of us know, most of us know, second kind of shame, which he calls victimization shame. Maybe someone made fun of us. Maybe it is something far more horrible than that, anywhere in between. And we may feel like that. The shame we feel from that is the worst problem possible, an unshakable stain, a scarlet letter. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Of course, I'm talking about the other kind of shame now, aren't I? And Welch says something interesting about this. He says, victimization shame usually intensifies pre-existing sin shame. Too many S's there. But in other words, it is rare that we only struggle with the ways that we've been sinned against. Usually the ways that others have shamed us and hurt us. They are simply intensifying the shame, the sin, the misery that we are all born with. Let me put it another way. Maybe you've been, you've never been sinned against in a dramatic way. No spiritual, emotional scars to speak of. On the other hand, maybe you're covered with scars. Every kind of abuse 
you can think of. No matter how many scars you have from others, zero or a zillion, you will never know peace with God until you deal with the scar, the shame of your own sin. Why are God's people suffering? Why does it seem like they've been sold? Because of their own sin, their iniquity, their transgressions, their lawlessness and rebellion, regardless of what anyone else has done. That is why we struggle. That is why we suffer. You can't fix all the problems around you. You can't even really fix yourself. But you can fix your eyes upon Jesus. You can look to the one who can heal you, who can forgive your sin, who can lead you in the way of righteousness. You can't make God's kingdom come. You can't make the world be pristine and, and flawless overnight. You can't do that. You can't do that overnight. You can't do that for a long period of time. You can't. I can't. You can't ask him to help you to do his will. Thy will be done. Thy will be done by me right now, I once heard someone say. We can all pray that. When we don't know what else to do about the sin around us, we can pray that. The suffering of God's people. Sometimes, sadly, it is our fault. And even when it's not, we still need a Savior. That leads to our second point this morning. The steadfastness of God's servant. The steadfastness of God's servant in verses 4 through 9. I said there are two kinds of people. One who can handle all of their own problems, if, you know, they actually had any problems. And then there's another. They haven't fully come into focus yet. It's one who knows that they have a problem, who knows that they need help. But what kind of help is that exactly? While we're thinking about that, there is a new character introduced here in verse 4. This is not the Lord who spoke in verse 1. No, this is someone speaking about the Lord God or Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. It says in verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So this speaker, he has been given a gift by God, the gift of speaking words of encouragement, a gift that must be nurtured morning by morning. So this speaker must be a disciple of the Lord. You wonder if he's the kind of 12-year-old who asked good questions and listened to the experts of God's word. You seem to pick up that this, this servant, he is not fickle, rebellious like God's people, this disciple. He's not obstinate, as we saw in chapter 48, verse 4. He's not hard-headed, refusing to listen. It also says in verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And Maybe you're hearing echoes here. You're beginning to say, wait a minute, have we, have we seen this person before? If you look back at Isaiah 49, it says in verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Verse 4, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. This person who speaks God's word, who labors despite opposition. Another thing we saw in chapter 49. 
despite opposition from God's people, haven't we met him before? Is the speaker of Isaiah 50 verses 4 and beyond, is this the servant whom we met just last week? Have we stumbled upon the, the third of Isaiah's servant songs? Verse 10 seems to say so. You think about it, the, the pieces fit, don't they? It says he will not rebel like Israel. He will not turn back. Even if 10 spies tell him that the opposition is too fierce, even if his closest followers say of his life's mission, no, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You can't lay down your life and suffer. No, you have to rule and reign and conquer. No, even in the face of that, he will not turn back. He will remain steadfast in his mission. Verse six, I gave my back to those who strike in my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, spat upon, slashed, flogged on his back. Will that stop him? Surely not. Who is this servant? Verse 7 says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Flint is used for starting a fire. Some of you know, those of you better Boy Scouts than me, but it creates sparks, Flint does. But, but it's first and foremost a hard, very inflexible stone. So to set one's face like a flint is to show unwavering determination, an undaunted pursuit of a goal, similar to what Jesus showed throughout his earthly ministry, his journey to the cross for example, Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This servant that Isaiah speaks of, he shows similar resolve and steadfastness, does he not? There seems to be shame and disgrace waiting for him, but he keeps going. There's reasons to turn back, but he doesn't. Why is he so confident in his mission? Verse 8 he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Vindicate. He who vindicates me is near. Vindicate. It's the same Hebrew word group as justify or make, declare righteous. We are in the courtroom now. God's servant expects others to contend with him. Adversaries, accusers. It's almost like he expects them to bring false accusations, but he still seems bold and defiant. Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them, all of his accusers will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Must be great to feel that way. Freedom from guilt and shame and accusations. But, but how would that be possible? If we have so much sin of our own, then how could we ever feel this way? I mean, who talks this way? Well, the Apostle Paul talks this way, doesn't he? Romans 8, verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Did you catch the last part? Through him who loved us. There's a him who makes this possible. Who is it? He's the one who's mentioned in the verse that I omitted at the very beginning of all that Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's how that whole section starts. You see, there came a servant who could have been served. Oh, he was great. But he came to serve, not to be served. His father gave him up and he also gave himself up. He succeeded in all the ways that his people failed. Even when the opposition grew fierce, violent, accusatory, slanderous. Yes, he was accused of quite a bit, even though he was innocent. Think about that for a minute. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You ever heard that phrase? Not always. Not always is that the case. He was steadfast in his mission. He was steadfast in his obedience. One commentator says he was the disciple par excellence, the perfect disciple. Steadfast in study, morning by morning. Why do you think it is that he was able to ask such good questions when he was 12 years old? Steadfast in encouragement, speaking God's word to Sustained the weary, the ones who had obeyed and obeyed and felt like God maybe had forgotten them and then it just isn't worth it anymore. He sustained them. He didn't crush them. A bruised reed he did not break. A faintly burning wick he did not snuff out. He sustained the weary with a word. There's a now departed commentator who says this, nothing indicates a tongue befitting the disciples of God so much as the gift of administering consolation. Nothing shows you to be a disciple of Christ so much as the gift of encouragement given to those who need it. A few times in the past years, I've uh, said the following. Almost everyone is overreacting to something right now. Almost no one thinks they're the main problem. Everyone, no exception, can do a better job reacting to the overreactions around them. Is that still true today? Maybe not. Maybe life's calmed down a little. Maybe I just feel better because I don't have a Facebook account anymore. Who knows? Regardless of how amped up we are or not, do you know anyone who needs the gift of consolation? Do you need it? Do you need it? Do you want it? Do you think that there might be a golden rule type of application lurking in this series of rhetorical questions? Do you think God would be pleased if you gave others the consolation, the encouragement that you seek? Because you see, even if you feel it, feel empty, just can't do one more thing. God is ready to fill your cup to make it overflow with consolation. As a matter of fact, it's already happened. The greatest consolation happened in Luke 2. 700 years after Isaiah, baby Jesus and his parents 
They're in the temple to offer the sacrifice of purification. There's a bystander named Simeon who it says was, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when he saw Jesus, still a baby, infant, not much younger or older than the babies we have been able to welcome into our congregation just recently. Still a baby. He bursts into song, Simeon does, and says, Lord, you, if you want to follow along, Luke 2, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who know they can handle all of their own problems, if you know they actually had problems. And then there's this other kind that we're starting to understand better. And we're about to see them clearly. Our third point this morning, the separation the servant causes. The separation that the servant causes, verses 10 and 11. We've seen suffering, which is sadly an inevitable result of our own sin, even if other sinners pile more suffering on top of it. We've seen steadfastness, the obedience, the character that the servant models, the same character that allowed him to suffer in our place for those who trust in him. And you see, that is the great separator, that dividing line between the two types of people. Some trust in the servant, not merely as an example, but as their savior. And then some trust themselves to handle whatever problems they have, if you know they actually have any. If you look at verses 10 and 11, you see this. Let's read those. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Again, verse 10 is the first time we learn that the servant of Isaiah 42, 49, as well as 53, that he is the one who's been speaking. And now we learn he is not merely a servant, an example, the one who succeeded in all the ways we failed. No, this servant, it says, is one to be obeyed, according to verse 10. Basic Hebrew poetry, this would tell you that this servant is in some ways, some way, equivalent with the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. Hebrew poetry is about rhyming thoughts, not rhyming words. So we are meant to see that fearing the Lord is basically the same as obeying the voice of this, the Lord's servant. So who is this servant? And what will his disciples be like? Well, they'll be like him. They will obey their father, even if it gets hard, even if it leads to opposition. Even if the next steps are confusing and unclear, even then they will do the, the next right thing. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Sometimes darkness is going to come, even for those who obey God. And it may not be a sign of bad or sinful choices. Darkness may not be judgment. Darkness may simply be the path of the Lord's disciple. Yes, 
There were people in Isaiah's day, they were rebellious. They had, they had brought darkness upon themselves, you might say, in another way. And they needed to wake up, repent, see their own sin. We've seen it a hundred times in Isaiah. Those people were there, yes. But some were obedient, a remnant. Some were simply tired and weary. A few years ago, someone told me, making all the right choices doesn't exempt you from the cost of all the right choices. Another way, why does Paul tell the Galatians? I believe it's Galatians 6. Why does he tell the Galatians not to grow weary and well-doing? Because sometimes we get tired of doing the right thing. Sometimes we lose perspective. We think it's not worth it. And the people that are doing that, who are breaking the rules, they're just living a good life with no bad consequences. Why not just do what they're doing? Does God really care? Hasn't he obviously forgotten about me? Allowed me into this mess in the first place. What do I think of that kind of thinking? I think if you feel that way, you are not the first to feel that way. Years ago, a bunch of British pastors said this. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation. Diverse ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted. This was a few hundred years ago. Pardon the old-fashioned speech. But notice what they're saying. They are saying your assurance might diminish. Not your actual salvation. They're saying that you can be saved by the love that will not let you go, but you may still doubt. Oh, doubt happens. And they list all the reasons why afterwards. They talk about negligence in preserving your assurance. They talk about sin. They also mention that one of the reasons might be because God simply withdraws, quote, the light of his countenance and suffers even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. And they are referring to this verse. But they go on to say, true believers will never be utterly destitute of God and faith and that the spirit may in due time restore their assurance and confidence. We looked at Psalm 42 and 43. I think it was a confession of sin a few weeks ago. The verse, I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. There's hope. Even if you walk through darkness for a time, we can find the strength to say Romans 8 with confidence once again. No, none of that is an easy path. That's why there are two kinds of people and not just one. Because not everyone chooses this path. The gate is small. The road is narrow, Jesus says. It may even be dark, but it leads to life. And it's worth it. And oh, there's another path, another kind of people. Verse 11, behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. The darkness of this fallen world, it's not a fun place to be. So it's natural that we would seek a source of light and knowledge, but sometimes we seek the wrong source. Sometimes we seek our own sources of light. A couple examples. God must not love us. He has divorced us. He's forgotten us. So I have to find my own way in this world. I have to make sense of it myself. 
God doesn't or you might say God does love us. Oh, but he's not powerful enough. He's not rich enough to take care of us. So so I still have to find comfort in something else. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's comfort, freedom, man's wisdom, man's knowledge. Maybe it's in, in living off the grid, getting away from that annoyance known as other people. Not that money or success or unplugging are all bad by themselves. But if they are your way of finding the light that God wants to give, and you're headed for destruction, you're headed for disaster, if you've abandoned God's way because it got dark for a while, because it got hard for a while, then beware, my friend. And how do you know if you've done that? Are you tired of listening to the advice of Christians, be it Christian friends or Christian authors? Has the Bible become boring to you? Boring, quaint. That's fine for you, but I prefer to hear other, more contemporary ideas. Are you beginning to light your own torches, to create your own light, to forge your own path? Because again, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who trust God, his light, even when it gets dark for a time, and those who make their own light who only trust themselves, who solve their own problems, who forge their own path. And it may seem easier to light whatever torch you can find. iPhone, flashlight, boom, here we go. It may seem scary to follow the one who makes you walk through the valley of deep darkness. But before you choose your path, remember who you're following down that narrow and dark path. Is that guide worth following? Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Is he worth following? Because there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who follow the one who loved them and gave himself for them. Those who follow him and those who don't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good in all that you do is good. You are working all things together for good. Those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, if we have been called, we know that we have answered that call. Give us confidence in your care, and your provision. And if we have not yet been called, if we don't know the sound of your voice, oh, Father, would you draw us closer still, even now, even right now. Father, would you help us to know the comfort that we can find in Christ, our Savior, even in the darkness, even in the times of uncertainty. We may not, we may not know the way, but oh, we know our guide and his love can never fail. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.